You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we welcome back microcap expert Ian Castle. I interviewed Ian back in March on episode 431, where we explored the concept of investing in microcap stocks. It's been one of my favorite discussions over the last year, so we are excited to welcome back Ian to discuss his recent annual microcap leadership summit and some of the ideas that came out of it. In this episode, you will learn some reasons why microcaps are outperforming some of the larger cap segments, how Ian compares the current market to 2008, risks and opportunities appearing as interest rates move higher, private equities, recent interests in public markets, some strategies and stock ideas from the recent summit, and much, much more. I always enjoy speaking with Ian. He brings a deep knowledge of the world of microcaps and draws from some other amazing investors in the space. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ian Castle. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I am your host, Trey Lockerbie, and I am so glad to welcome back our friend Ian Castle to the show. Ian, so happy to have you. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's my pleasure. Well, at the time of this recording, the S&P is down 23% year to date. The NASDAQ is down 31%, give or take. Large caps are down 24%. Mid caps are down 21.5%. Small caps are down 23%. And micro caps are down 18%, according to the MSCI index. So this really surprised me. And I was excited to have you back on because last time we were chatting, I was sort of under this impression that during a downturn like we're currently experiencing, micro caps might perform the worst because there's a lot less liquidity involved and you might get you know no bid happening, so let's say. So how do you interpret the performance of micro cap stocks year to date? No, I, I think you raise a good point. I think there might be two or three different reasons to kind of explain that. And you're right. Normally during kind of bear market environments, especially through recessions, you know, micro cap as a whole will underperform the overall indices. You know, even what I tell my investors that are invested with me, it's like, hey, if the market's down 30, we're going to be down 45. You know, and if you're not okay with that, this isn't for you. And so that kind of explains the volatility. Normally the lows are lower and the highs are higher, but overall, hopefully you outperform the indices. I think what makes it unique, kind of what we're going through the last six, nine months, 12 months even, is, you know, the euphoria in the markets was mainly larger companies and it was mainly larger technology companies. Most were small caps or mid caps or even large caps. And when you kind of look at the universe, which I'm sure you do and others do, you know, you have Shopify down 80%. You have Netflix is a very mega cap company down 62%, you know, year to date. Even the SPACs, the SPAC boom that we had, most of those were majority small caps or larger when you're looking at a market cap spectrum. And, you know, even the meme stocks, whether it's GameStop, even though know, that's down from whatever it was down to whatever it is, I think it's still a seven to $8 billion market cap. And so those aren't micro caps. And so I think it got overheated a lot more in the larger tech stocks, which is why the NASDAQ, I think, is down 30% year to date compared to the micro cap indices, which I think the iShares Russell micro cap is down 25-ish. Uh, you mentioned 18, but it's down less than the NASDAQ overall. And so I think that's one of the reasons. I, and I think another 
reason too is we haven't really seen, at least I don't think quite yet, maybe we will in the future, haven't seen sort of the recessionary effects of this drawdown. The overall market's down, but we haven't seen like some significant downticks in the overall economy yet. And I think if that hits in, you'll see maybe another like lower in microcap. And I think maybe another reason is, you know, microcaps as a whole, depending on where you invest. And, you know, the biggest benefit to being a microcap investor is you are a stock picker. You can choose your spots and you can choose what companies you want to invest in. You know, a lot of these companies are kind of domestic. You know, they have domestic uh, manufacturing, domestic employment, domestic markets. And so they might not be susceptible to the geopolitical headwinds that we face or macroeconomic headwinds that some global larger companies may face. And so sometimes, you know, being in some of these small caps that are domestic is more of a defensive posture as well. And I can't say that's in general the overall landscape of uh, microcap, but I think those are maybe three reasons why we. Microcaps as a whole have kind of outperformed even the NASDAQ year to date. That's a very interesting point, that last one. So the first one you made, though, am I understanding correctly that you were saying it's almost defensive and the fact that it's down less than, say, the bigger caps, was it because it was sort of underperforming to begin with? You know, as things got frothy up top, microcaps were kind of buzzing along, but not as dramatically. And so therefore, yeah. the downside has been less as well. No, exactly. I mean, I remember having conversations a year, year and a half ago you know, with investors saying, why would I want to bother investing in microcaps when I could just buy a large cap compounder and make 35% and have less drawdowns, you know, over year after year after year, which is what we've experienced over the last six or seven years. So yeah. Of all the downturns you've experienced to date, and I know there's been you know quite a few since you started doing this, how does the current market compare? I think this is the worst it's been that I've seen since 2008, 2009. We aren't yet to the level of fear that I remember from that time period. I mean, we all thought the world was ending, you know, kind of like what I said in the earlier answer to your question. You know, we haven't really seen sort of the economic hits on, at least here in the US, the domestic business climate quite yet. You do in maybe housing and real estate, but not so much. I mean, I still go out to the restaurant and it's full on a Tuesday night. You're still seeing the consumer out and spending money. So it doesn't mean that it's not going to get worse. And it very well could. But I do feel like it is probably as bad as I've seen since 0809. But it's certainly not quite as bad. I mean, the hardest part about dealing with kind of drawdowns is it makes you more and more short term instead of kind of pushing out your time horizon. And so, you know, your portfolio drops 20% and you're excited to buy more, but then it drops another 10 or 20%. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, then all of a sudden you're on the phone with management asking them the same questions you just did the month prior because you just want to get that verification that everything's okay. You know, and then you buy more and then all of a sudden you just run out of run out of dry powder to buy more. And then it drops another 10 or 20%. And you're just kind of frozen. And you know nothing's worse. Drawdowns are the most painful when you don't have the cash to take advantage of them. And uh, so that's one of the lessons that I went through in the you know, last two or three kind of recessionary environments that I went through was it always feels good to at least have some cash on the sidelines, even if it's just a little bit. You know, even if you're just buying another one percent of a position somewhere. You know, over time, at least it makes it feel emotionally, mentally, psychologically, like you're taking advantage of the situation. And so, and you know, what tends to happen too is like the lower things go, the more you turn yourself, at least for me being a stock picker, the more I start thinking about the macro market, inflation, interest rates, you know, Elon Musk, whatever the case may be, things that are distracting me from kind of the micro focus. 
And so everything just gets you thinking more short term, like you can't mentally handle being down another 10 or 20%. So you just tap out. And so it's, it's important to just uh, kind of stay in the game, stay in mentally and emotionally. You brought up Elon. I have a quick question there about that. So there's been a lot of signs, let's say, about what the top was of 2021. And it seems like you know we ran up all the way to the end of the year. But around November, December timeframe, Elon sold about almost $7 billion worth of Tesla stock, something he said he'd never do. You had things like Beeple NFT selling for $69 million. You had the meme stocks, as you pointed out earlier, 600 or so SPACs IPOing. I mean, looking back... Was there anything that signaled a definitive top in the microcap market specifically? I think it was just a combination of all those things. I like to think people point to whether it was Elon Musk selling or point to Shamath and the SPAC boom that took place. And maybe the SPAC boom was maybe a better gauge because, I mean, you generally with the SPACs, you had sort of $100, $200 million revenue businesses that were growing 100%, but also losing 100 to $200 million a year. And, you know, it's just like, how is that sustainable? And I don't want to be a, you know, I don't want to hit one SPACs as an investor vehicle or anything like that. But I think, you know, it was a combination, I think, of everything. And it's hard to disconnect from that type of environment and stay rational because I was fairly fully invested then and I'm fairly fully invested now. And so you just kind of have to step back and be okay, be emotionally neutral towards the current environment and keep to that kind of three, four, five year kind of investment time horizon looking out. As investors, we're always trying to do that, be emotionally neutral, as you just said, and keep a stoic approach to investing, almost as if we're sharpening the skills in preparation for times like these, right? I feel like a lot of discussions I've had in the last few years have been sort of like, okay, when, but when the time comes, we'll be ready, right? But what tools have you used to keep you calm through the current storm we're going through? I'm a concentrated stock picker. I've always been. I was more concentrated in my youth, but I'm still probably fairly concentrated now. You know, I'm primarily looking to invest in the best six to ten companies I could find. And to do that, you have to do the work and build the confidence to own these things through the, any type of volatile environment. You know, I'm I'm not a big fan of saying that you must be stoic or you must be lack emotion or you must get rid of your emotions. You know, this is a very emotional game that we play. You know, I'm investing in my family's livelihood. You know, I have 70 other families that have given me some portion of their capital to invest with me alongside. I take that seriously. You know, I didn't make that money. They gave it to me. You know, I take their trust seriously. And so I think a certain degree of emotion is good because it gets you up at the start of every day and keeps you focused on what you need to do to get the job done. And so I know for me, with drawdowns, the way I kind of stay emotionally neutral is understanding what I can control and what I can't control. And even the things I feel like I can control, I can't, I'm not really in control of the outcomes. So what I can control is the macro environment. What I can't control is where interest rates are going or when they're going there or inflation or whatever, who's going to go to war with whom. And so the way I deal with that is really paying attention to the micro focus, really handling that at the portfolio level. And I think I may have explained this in a previous interview with you, but you know, I really have, call it six kind of attributes I'm looking at when I'm investing in a business. And it's very particular, kind of two top level ones. So a combination of scarcity and tailwinds. You know, I'm looking for one of one businesses when I invest in them, not one of a thousand. I'm not looking for another company that's marketing the same product or service as somebody else, just a little bit differently. Really, truly looking for one of ones. Um, and it's just like Picasso in the art world. Like the the prices go up and up when people want when there's 
something that's scarce, it's in demand. Um, that's what I'm looking for. And then also, obviously, tailwinds. You know, it's easier to invest when there's a tailwind in your back rather than a headwind in your face. And so that's kind of like the top level. But the kind of getting back in down into the four kind of key attributes is I'm really looking for businesses that can grow through a recessionary environment. And there's not very many of them out there. You know, I'm also looking for a business that has a balance sheet that can weather the storm of a bad economic climate, not only to weather it, but to be aggressive so they can acquire a competitor when their competitors, you know, really can't because they're either over levered or they just financially can't do anything. Also, we talked about intelligent fanaticism, I think, before, you know, I'm looking for those great leaders that show signs of intelligent fanaticism that put great management, you know, build a great team around them. And lastly, obviously, looking for evaluation where I can at least double my money, or at least I feel like I could double my money within three years. And what's exciting about the current environment to that last point is the last six to 12 months, specifically in microcap and also elsewhere, is you've had multiples contract significantly. And so for the first time in maybe a half a decade, you see that you might be able to have multiple appreciation again, which is pretty stellar when you look at some of these businesses, especially if you're investing in good ones. You know, the fact that, hey, we might get multiple expansion again. And that's really how you get multi baggers. You get multi baggers from really growing earnings per share and then multiple expansion over time. And so I'm really excited about the current opportunity set. And then lastly, we already hit on it before, but you know, just being able to have some cash on the sidelines to be take advantage of these opportunities, you know, is really, really important. That cash component is interesting to me because it takes a certain amount of discipline and probably quite a lot of discipline to have that cash in this current moment, right? Without maybe liquidating along the way. So has this been a cash position you've been either holding or, or building over the last couple of years and you're kind of getting some gratification from having done that? No, I, I, I wish I could say that. Well, maybe I don't wish I could say it was true. I'm not a big fan of holding a lot of cash. I have some good friends who are great investors too, that they've been 30, 40% cash you know, since 2015. I'm talking about just even having 5, 8% cash that you can take advantage of situations. And sometimes that cash is comes in into place from selling out your worst idea, you know, and redeploying that into your best ideas. So it's not just a static cash position, but it's just kind of redeployment. So you don't have 120 billion sitting around like Buffett. I got it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned this defensibility again. I'm kind of curious with the rates rising as swiftly as they are. You said you're seeing an increase in opportunities. I'm also kind of curious though, if you're seeing an increase in risk, right? Because a lot of these smaller companies, they might be just more vulnerable. Maybe they've got a strong balance sheet, but the liquidity is going away and maybe their access to cheap debt to continue building is going away. How is that sort of impacting the current uh, opportunity set for you? I would say it's mainly a positive outcome, you know, the current environment. Because like again, I'm mainly looking for really great businesses that are cash flow positive, that have good balance sheets. And when you look at across the ecosystem of micro caps, I think 18% are profitable. And so right there, you cut out 80% of the, the ecosystem, you know, right, right out of the gate. And that's what I tell people for the first time that are looking at micro caps. I think it's easy just to look at the next story stock, you know, that doesn't have any revenue. But I try to caution people towards that. And you can do that later on. But to start out, I would tell people to look at the income statement, focus on the profitable businesses that are out there. And that probably cuts out 95% of the issues you'll have investing in this space. You mentioned 
having companies also that thrive through a recession, which is really interesting. I'm kind of curious though, with the investors you have now, are you resetting expectations even further a little bit saying, Hey, we had this basket of stocks, but you know, they're going to grow a little slower over the next couple of years and what that's going to do to performance. Or do you feel like this is actually going to propel some of these companies forward? I think the way I position it with investors is, you know, every investor that invests alongside me, I, even when they were coming on two years ago, during the height of the bull market, it was, you know, we're going to have the market's going to draw down 30% and we're going to draw down 40. You know, and that's just the way it's going to be. You're scared by that. And obviously it's easy for them to say, oh yeah, you know, I can take the volatility when you're in that moment. But, you know, I think you, you really have to guard against people having irrational expectations. And so I think from the investor standpoint, I've warned them and I think I have a great group of investors. They're mainly small business owners, to be honest with you. And they understand the complexity of small business because that's what we invest in. And um, it's been a benefit there. With regards to the companies, very few, if any, have seen a decrease in growth rates. A couple of them have seen an acceleration of growth rates. So that's why it gets really, really attractive. Not to be too simplistic, but if I think a business is going to grow 25% a year over the next three years, which is basically a doubling of their revenue over three years, and the multiples investors are currently willing to pay for that stock are at historic lows. You know, I know that probably the return on that investment will match the growth rate of that company. So I would expect to hopefully the stock would double over the course of three years. But if the multiple actually starts to expand again, that's where you get the leverage on that. And that's where you can get two, three, four X on your money over a course of three or four years. And right now it's a very opportunistic time because you've seen the multiples contract 50, 60, 70% in some cases for businesses that are profitable, that are still sustaining high growth rates. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, 
coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You mentioned this was the, the most similar to 2008 that you've experienced and I didn't really get the opportunity to invest in 2008. I wish I did to some degree. I know it was a very painful experience, but gosh, there were a lot of opportunities that came out of it. You know, and, and not a lot of people, I guess, really think about this, but it took quite a long time for it to bottom out, right? It took like almost a couple of years. And so if that's sort of what's ahead of us, I guess what's kind of throwing me a little bit, and I'm kind of curious on your take here, is that everyone seems to be bearish right now. And I know that maybe in the markets and in the professional arena, that was the case in 2008. But on Main Street, I don't remember that being so much the case, just people not being so privy to what was happening exactly in the markets. So now that I'm more inside of it, I am just looking around being like, wow, well, you always hear this idea that you know the herd is not always correct and you got to go against it. So when I see everyone as bearish as they are now, it somewhat gives me pause, even though this time is probably correct, where, where people are just seeing all the same signals and it's going to play out similarly. Have you been experiencing something similar to that in any degree where you're looking around saying, hey, this looks, I've seen this movie before, but does it give you pause at all? I'm just kind of curious. No, it is. And I think you're right. I mean, usually the loudest voices are bears and that's just how it is. It's how it's always been. And compared to 2008, 2009, there's you know so many more ways for people to have a voice, you know, whether that's podcasts or whether that's you know social media or what have you. And so it does seem louder. It does seem like everybody is bearish, and it does get me excited about the opportunity set. And I think what also you know just because the overall markets go down more from here potentially, it doesn't mean that some of the equities that you're invested in they might not go down. Like some of the small cap and micro cap stocks on my watch list, you know, a lot of them hit their lows. May, June, and they're still 30, 40% off the lows. So it doesn't mean like if the stock market goes down another 10% that everything else needs to go down 20 or even make new lows. So you always have to be looking at at where is this business going to be in three years, you know, and kind of just keep to that time frame. It's so easy to just get caught up in what's next quarter going to look like. Probably the worst environment that I saw was actually during Q4 earnings for last year, which would have been, I guess that would have been like March timeframe. And it was just that was the worst earnings period I think I've ever seen where companies would come out and they would beat estimates and their stocks were down 10% the next day. If they met estimates, they were down 20%. And if they did not meet estimates for analysts, they were down 40. You know, that's when you saw like these huge drawdowns in some of the mega caps. And that was just an awful time period. Like you were just kind of it's like you're juggling dynamite as an investor going into the earnings call because you didn't know how bad it was going to be. You just knew it was going to be bad. So a lot of ways it felt worse earlier in the year. So I guess maybe just the point I would make is just because the market may go down doesn't mean that the stocks that you own will go down, you know, especially if they're higher quality. And that's what I realized through the 0809 time period. I was in mainly in, in three companies, and one of them was down 62% peak to trough, but it troughed in late 08. And I think 
by late 2009, it was already back to its highs. You know, and six months later, it was doubled from there. You know, and so what you see is kind of a lot of times quality bounces back first. And so, and I think it usually bottoms first, you know, because people want to look at quality first to dip their toe back in the market again. And that's what I experienced back in 0809. The other thing I experienced, obviously, to benefit microcaps was even in that environment, there were still larger investors and larger pools of capital that were interested in owning things that were growing rapidly, earning more money, not diluting that they didn't own. And so there was still bid support and undiscovered, profitable, growing businesses. Speaking of dipping their toe in, something we're seeing right now, which is kind of interesting, is private equity taking an interest in the public markets. You had Brookfield allocating around $110 billion. What is the implication of this? And do you think we'll start seeing a lot of, I guess, an increase in companies going private maybe in the next year? I wouldn't be surprised by it. I mean, if you think about it, I think there's usually a 6 to 18-month lag between private valuations and public valuations. So public valuations get hit first, and then it takes another year or so for private valuations to catch up. And kind of in the interim, you have people racing to raise capital to take advantage of public equities being lower. And you saw that, uh, you mentioned Brookfield raising $110 billion. Historically, a microcap club, we've had, I think we're up to 880 companies profiled by our members since 2011, so over 10 years. And I think about 18% have been acquired you know, which seems like a big chunk of companies, and it is. But I think it, it tends to ebb and flow more with kind of the valuations overall. So I would not be surprised to see a lot of M and A activity really spark up and get more robust over the next you know six to twelve months. And I think that's what you see in Brookfield, one hundred ten billion dollars raised, mainly focused on kind of Canadian public companies, which is interesting. And to give you an idea of the size of one hundred ten billion, we all know what that is and means, but. There was a paper written by Dr. Parrott of Parrott Funds. I think it was back in 2008, 2009, called The Microcap Advantage. And I remember reading that. And it was like halfway through that white paper, he talks about just the size of the microcap ecosystem in the United States. And back then, this was obviously 12 years ago, I think he, I think he said it was around 300 billion, the entire microcap ecosystem in the US. And he kind of went through it and said, okay, well, let's just say a third of these businesses that are microcaps are insider held. And let's say the other third, let's just say, is somewhat owned by the large holders or institutions. So that means that basically for $100 billion, you could buy the entire float of every microcap in the United States, $100 billion, which I don't know if Apple or Berkshire has that on their balance sheet, but it's kind of funny to think about. So that kind of gives you the size of kind of what $100 billion could do even today. And I think when I, when I ran the numbers three or four years ago, we had a buddy out of Bloomberg and I had him kind of like do some of the screening and figure it out. I think it was around 500 billion was the microcap ecosystem here in the US. So it's similar. You know, there's five companies probably today that individually have a market cap over 500 billion. And that's pretty much the size of, you know, the entire microcap space. I saw a, or I read an article the other day and as, actually, as I see a, an ant walk across my floor right now. It talked about ants. And if you were to combine all of the ants on Earth like into like a ball, the entire mass of all the ants on Earth is actually larger 
than all mammals and all birds mass put together, which is incredibly think about like the entire mass of the ants, you know, versus, you know, all mammals and birds it just shows how many ants there are in this world. You know, I kind of compare that to microcaps. Yeah, there's just a lot of microcaps out there. It's 55% of all public companies in the US. It's 70% of all public companies in Canada and similar percentages around the globe. And most people haven't heard about any single one of these companies, but they have a big influence. You know, over the economy, over everything. You know, here in the U.S., I think I looked and it was, I think they support close to three or four million jobs in the U.S. You know, it's probably 10 or 15% of the job market in Canada. It's a big impact, you know, that Mayor Cap has. I love that. You know, it's interestingly enough, I, I've heard that ants are the most like humans, right? They're the most social creatures. They go to war with each other. I mean, really fascinating. You don't think about it like that because they're so small, but they have, man, a lot of similarities here. I'm kind of curious about your portfolio. A couple of things here. One is you mentioned having a strong balance sheet, but I know that you focus a lot on the founders and, and having them involved in the company. And sometimes that's an important check mark for you. Are you seeing founders doing something similar, meaning they've got capital, they've got some dry powder of their own and they're buying back shares? Have you seen any of that start to happen or is that something you look for? It is. I mean, nothing's better than seeing a founder or management team put skin in the game supporting the equity. And you are seeing that more and more, especially with businesses that uh, have the business strength and the balance sheet to be able to take advantage of this environment. Because if you're a management team and you just saw your equity go down 50-60%, your best ROI for that cash in the balance sheet might be just buying your own shares, eating yourself you know, cannibals, as you would say. And you are seeing more and more of that. And that's, I'm also very attracted to that as well. The, you know, as it relates to kind of my portfolio, and again, kind of getting back to kind of drawdowns, what I find too during drawdowns is, you know, really forces you to think deeply about what you own and why you own it. And I tend to get more concentrated kind of during drawdowns because, you know, some of the things that you have, you might have two or three things in the portfolio where you're kind of half convicted. All those things go away, you know, when you watch things drop, you know, you don't have time for things that you're half convicted in. And, you know, sort of the best thing about this drawdown too, in particular, because there was some violence with the drawdown, depending on what you were in, is a lot of times the losers in your portfolio, meaning the things that you would like to sell are down just as much as the winners, you know, which are the things you want to buy more of. So it's allowed you to kind of upgrade your portfolio, you know, through this. And and that's what I've seen in my own portfolio over the last called six to nine months, just getting more and more concentrated and upgrading the portfolio and really cutting the portfolio back to those positions that you truly, truly believe in that you can't live without. I was listening to an interview with Rick Rubin. And uh, Rick Rubin, you know, he's one of the greatest music producers of all time. I think uh, he worked with, was it Beastie Boys, Eminem, Metallica, Adele, Aerosmith, Dixie Chicks, Jay-Z, all across many, many genres. Just a, an amazing producer. And part of the interview, he talks about how he believes less is more. You know, in music, it's easy. You know, you want to keep building upon the music, adding things to it. When in reality, a lot of times you should be cutting it away so you can he hear each individual thing and, you know, and bring them together. You can actually hear each one. And he talked about how he builds a, a successful album. And he talked about how usually if you want to have a 10 song album, what they'll do is they'll work with the musician to work on 25 songs and then they'll cut it back to five or six songs. And then they'll only add the ones that make it better. And I kind of compare that way he builds a hit album to how you should be building a hit portfolio. And that's kind of what I've done over the last 6 to 12 months in my own portfolio is really just take it down from where I was at 
10 positions down to six. We're the ones I really truly believe in. And then from there, I'm only going to add something that makes that portfolio better. And so we've added maybe one position over the last three months during this drawdown, this environment. And I think that's a good lens to look at portfolio construction, at least for me being a concentrated stock picker. It's not for everybody the way I invest. And I don't say everybody should invest like me. I would hope you wouldn't. But um, that's kind of the way I think about it. With the idea of, of stripping away, you've added one position. Have you taken any away? Have you stripped down the portfolio yet that you kind of mentioned there? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, that's what I meant. We were at probably had 10 positions going into the end of last or yeah, end of last year. I stripped down about four or five positions and took it down to the bare minimum, you know, ones that I really, really loved. And then now adding as we see opportunity. And the, the one position we added is a company that we've I've followed for 10 years, you know, that just happened to um, inflect on some things where the valuation made sense and, and excited about the opportunity. So yeah, I stripped it down from 10 to 6 and now looking to add. But I'm fine with the portfolio being the way it is. I really am excited about what we own and why we own it. Did you see a fundamentals shift that gave you kind of pause in your thesis? Yeah. I think that's one of the businesses that we in. I mean, just to show you some of the volatility, I mean, one of our largest position we we bought at let's say ten dollars per share we initiated a position in early 2020 and then it hit 50 by the end of 2020 and then it went down 50 percent from the end of 2020 to the middle of 2021 and then it's just kind of meandered a little bit and now it's probably slightly higher than what it was a year ago you know even though we've gone to this market environment i like to say like well that position went down last year instead of this year the markets went down this year. But that business as a whole, that was what we invested in it. It was a $15 million revenue business growing 30% a year. And today it's a $40 million revenue business growing 40% a year with 90% gross margins. And so from a multiple perspective at anything, it's a lot cheaper than when we initiate the position in it. So you're finding... That's what I mean. Like, But the opportunity right now is you can find some really good situations that you know, the multiples have contracted down, they're growing into them. And eventually that equity is going to take off again. That Rick Rubin fact is kind of interesting about building up a record or an album. And his studio Shangri-La is kind of interesting because there's apparently no art on the walls. He keeps the walls blank so that the artist doesn't have any impressions. You know, he's the artist is able to create with no influence, if you will. But I'm kind of curious, you know, as a portfolio manager, we are, we're all looking for some kind of influence. Is there something you've been using as of late to kind of guide you and, and help inform you as you've been going along? Is there something that influences you or some resource that you uh, build on maybe outside of Microcap Club? Probably the biggest asset I have is the relationships I have with other investors. And some of that is fostered through Microcap Club because it, it is a place where people, at least online, can meet and greet and, and that type of thing. But just some of the relationships that I have with other investors that invest differently than me too. You can always learn a lot about yourself when you kind of meet Bizarro Trey or Bizarro Ian, where it's somebody that does the complete opposite of you, but is successful. You can usually learn something from somebody like that. For me, it might be looking at a deep value investor and seeing how they invest or whatever it may be. But I really am fascinated by learning from other folks that are really successful that invest differently than me. Because there's usually one or two things that I can pick up on that I can apply to my investing that will be beneficial and accretive to me and my investors. I mean, you don't need to make these huge changes. A lot of times, investor maturation isn't about making these huge step changes. It's about little tweaks in the fringes. And that's where the alpha is made. 
Well, I imagine that was some of the impetus for starting the MicroCap uh, Summit. And I'd like to talk a lot about that here because you just recently held this. It's the seventh year you've been doing this and you had 19 investors come and uh, speak about strategy and even stock picks. So I'm kind of curious, just off the top here, what were some of the big maybe headline takeaways that stuck with you? Yeah, no, th- thanks for bringing up the summit. Yeah, it, it just concluded last week and you know, this year was virtual once again. And you know, really what the goal of the summit is, it's called the Microcap Leadership Summit. It's really to do three things. You know, you want to have an event that educates and inspires folks. Uh, you want people to learn something. You want people to hear some good investment ideas. And you also want to provide the opportunity for them to meet other people like them. And a lot of that's easier to do in the physical form. And so we, this is our seventh summit this year. This is our 2020 third in a row that was virtual. But kind of virtual for us had its benefits too, because we've been getting more and more global as a community. And, you know, even when we had our event in Chicago physically in 2019, about half of the attendees flew in from overseas. So it's a very kind of international group. It's getting more and more global. So this year, it's a two day, it was a two day virtual event. The first day, I tried to hand pick 15 to 20. This year was 19, 19 of the best stock pickers in microcap that I knew to give short presentations, 20-minute presentations, kind of the first 10 minutes on their process, their strategy, what made them unique, and the last 10 minutes on their favorite microcap at the current price. And so we had a wide diversity of types of microcap investors that presented from different areas of the world. And it was the first time we ever did something like this you know, at the summit. And everybody seemed to enjoy it. I mean, it was, I, always, I always look at it as... Okay, I'm pretty experienced in this space. What would I want to pay attention to from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m.? And this is pretty cool. And so we had a really big variety of investors and ideas. And you know, we had deep value investors, the story stock investors, you know, everything in between. And we're actually starting to publicize some of those on our YouTube channel, uh, on Microcap Club's YouTube channel that uh, we're, we're pushing out right now. So if people want to listen in on some of them, you can do so. It's free. But uh, it was a great event. So that was day one. And then day two, try to hand select a dozen kind of unique micro cap companies that were very global. You know, And so we had, uh, even though we only had a dozen companies, we had seven different countries represented from Finland, Denmark, the UK, Australia, obviously the US, Canada, Belgium. And you know, it was 10 million market cap companies and 300 million market cap companies. You had story stocks and value stocks, you had diagnostic companies, companies trying to build an airline company, you know, it was a full variety, you know, and that's one of the tough things is people that tune into our event. You know, not everybody invests the same, you know, so you're trying to get a company or two or at least the entertainment value to where you can keep people interested in these in these presentations throughout the day. And I think we I think we did that. Um, I was really excited about the lineup we had this year. And so it was a great event just ended. You know, it's like playing a wedding every year. So I'm glad it's over for now. But uh, it's always fulfilling. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? 
They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Were you experiencing through that summit more of a, a bullish or optimistic sentiment than the compared to the bearish one we were just talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, I think it's there's opportunities every. I know for me, you know, I don't know if it's a contrary to me, but through what's going on over in Europe, I'm kind of more intrigued with what's happening in Europe from an investment standpoint. Like, what opportunities are there? And so, I really tried to get some companies that were in some areas in Europe that might not be as susceptible to some of the challenges that other areas of Europe might be. So, we had a company from Finland, you know, where 50 percent of their energy consumption comes from uranium, and so if they're not quite. It's not like Germany where things could get really bad or things like that. So 
I tried to get some really interesting migrant caps that were in some interesting countries that I knew nobody would have heard about. Very few people probably in those countries have heard about those companies, but they happen to be publicly traded on those ex- local exchanges over there. And, uh, you know, I think we showcase kind of some of the better or a couple of the better microcap companies that are over in that area as well. So it was, I know for me, I, I tried to have a global focus and also trying to understand a little bit that they're, everybody was running away from Europe. Let's try to showcase some European microcaps that are doing things differently. I think I know the answer to this one, but I have to ask because, you know, something that stood out to me was a lot of these investors that spoke, they weren't solely, or I'd say a few of them weren't solely microcap investors, right? So they had a strategy that would kind of dip into micro, but other things as well. No one pitched this, but when you see companies like Google or Alphabet, for example, today, you know, trading at a PE of 18, right? Like, do you ever get tempted, right? <laughs> you know, you're not your microcap investor, but you see some of these major caps or large caps getting fairly cheap by historical standards. Was that a topic of discussion at all? I'm curious. No, we actually make sure that we don't talk about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Only micro cap setter. No, I no, I understand. I think there is opportunity at large caps. And you know, there's quite a few, even quite a few fund managers that presented on our day one of the event where you know they own a hundred million market cap alongside Google in the portfolio. You know, and, and that's completely fine, obviously. You don't have to be just a micro cap investor. Uh, I think you know, to anything, you just everybody's goal should just try to find you know the next great undiscovered company, whether that's a billion market cap or ten million. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Just go find it before somebody else. That's kind of our marching call for Microcap Club. You know, beyond the stocks that were pitched at the summit, you featured the guests I just mentioned. That a lot of them had very unique strategies, which is I, I imagine the appeal and why you invited them in the first place. But were there a few strategies that stood out to you or interested you? maybe even surprise you from their presentations? I'm probably somewhat biased, but there was a couple of presentations. And all all of these will be public shortly on our YouTube channel. So there's one that I really enjoyed. Harris Copperman's was really good. People enjoy his communication style and people would enjoy his presentation, which which was just released. More of a macro type of investor that takes big swings and he does own a microcap and that's the one he presented. Another really great presentation was from Jason Hirschman, who's a good friend of mine. He's a full-time private investor, managing his own family office. and doesn't really have anything to sell anybody per se, but he gave his presentation itself on his process. His strategy was just really, really unique. And he's a phenomenal investor. You know, that's kind of the interesting thing about microcap investors and investing in general. Like Some of the best investors I know aren't necessarily hedge fund managers or professional investors. Sometimes they're small business owners, you know, and the best investor is really the key attribute is you're trying to find out the truth on a company. You know, that's if I, you know, boil it down to first principles, that's what it is. You're trying to find the truth. Whether that obviously you go into every situation reading filings, reading press releases, listening to earnings calls, reading earnings transcripts. But that's all information the company has put out for you to read or hear or absorb. You really need to get out there and dive deeper into the situation to find actually what the truth is behind a company and where it's going and where it's positioned. If I'm going to find out about you, Trey, obviously I'll talk to you. But if I really want to find out to you about you, I'll talk to your wife, I'll talk to your best friend, I'll talk to the, your business associates. And that's what it takes kind of the microcap world to find out what's really going on. All right. You mentioned Harris Kupperman. He's also known as Cuppy. A lot of people call him Cuppy for short. And I really liked his stock pick that he presented. You just released this along with a few others, as you mentioned. For those who are unfamiliar, we interviewed Cuppy in April. It was episode 428. And he pitched a stock called Lee, L-E-E. 
and Lee provides local and regional news and advertising services in the U.S., which, you know, might sound like it's just a melting ice cube at this point. But actually, there's this digital revenue portion, uh, a silo of the business that's growing quite rapidly and the biggest contributor to the EBITDA. The enterprise value right now is around $600 million. The market cap is $100 million, as you mentioned. Growing revenues and free cash flow. I mean, this is a really interesting stock. And the annual volatility is around 50%, which stood out to me. But you know what? Almost every stock we've talked about or that was pitched, it seems, in the microcap world has a volatility around 50%. It seems to be kind of par for the yeah. course there. So not a major asterisk, but something to be you know familiar with. I just found it really interesting. I kind of thought that was uh, something to maybe explore a little bit further. But another presenter was Paul Andriola. And Paul appears to be the best performing investor in the club. I mean, his stat is almost 10x. It seems like anybody else that's on the platform there. How would you describe his strategy and what was it like to kind of learn from him? Yeah, no, I've been friends with Paul for a lot of years. And you know, the way our ranking system works in Microcap Club, which is what you're referring to, is every company that you profile, we collect it, see what the starting stock price is, and then you get points based on the performance of that stock pick. So if I if I profile something at a dollar and it goes to two dollars, you get a hundred points. If it went to three dollars, you get two hundred points. So the percentages are basically the, the amount of points you would get. And it's detractors too. If you profile something at ten and it goes to five, it works in the opposite direction. And so he happened to be the one that profiled Expel a long, long time ago. I think at like thirty cents, and it went to a hundred hundred dollars per share. And so that's been. The main driver of that of that return profile, ironically enough, Jason Hirschman, who I talked about earlier about paying attention to him when his presentation comes out, he actually owned five percent of that company from a dollar to a hundred, and so he's sort of the goat of holding that company. He's an incredible investor. So yeah, I think to Paul, he is really really good at finding these small, high growth, profitable micro caps in Canada. So that's kind of has been his focus for the last twenty years, and he's really really good at it. It only takes one. Seems like that's uh, that's quite impressive. It's sort of to your point about you know Harris and Lee, and not specific to that company in general. You see that quite a bit in microcap, where you have a business where one part of the business is declining, another one is going is accelerating. Overall, it's showing that the company's not growing at all, maybe even declining. When in reality, there's a smaller part of the business that's growing rapidly, and it might be a business like that where it's newspapers. You know, as well, so we're like, eh, you know, I don't want anything to do with that. It doesn't screen well because it's not really growing. So you find things like that, and it's why it's also important to to dig below the surface of the financials on all of these businesses because you can find some hidden gems that are kind of about to kind of break through and hopefully be found by a majority of investors. And a lot of that means you just have to do, do the work to read through the file list to find out those situations, and that's that's a big part of what we do as well. Now, did you present at the summit or, or did any of the Microcap Club founders present? Because I imagine people want to hear from you as well. I imagine they would, but I was the MC for the entire event. So I was exhausted. <laughs> so I, and I would much rather put other people at the pedestal rather than myself. So I, I just played host the whole time. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you were able to see the future a little bit and you knew we were going into another year or two of, of a bear market... Would you do anything else to hedge? And, and I guess what I'm kind of asking about is maybe not hedging in the stock market, but but do you look to other asset classes outside of microcap stocks just for your general portfolio? I don't, but I'm not advising that. Microcap investing is the only thing I've been doing since I was a teenager. It's the only thing I can I feel like I have an edge in. And every time I've tried to get into other things, I've gotten my hands slapped. 
you know, so I just kind of focus on this niche of the market. And if I knew the US was going into a recession for the next six months, 12 months, however long, I probably wouldn't do anything differently than what I'm doing right now. And I don't hedge strictly long only in a concentrated portfolio of buyer caps. And my way to hedge is just being in the most unique, best companies I can find that are growing rapidly, that have great balance sheets that can endure a recession and take advantage of one, you know, and that's kind of the way I try to hedge out my risk. It doesn't mean that the portfolio will not be volatile. It certainly will be. But, you know, in the long term, you know, I always kind of keep to that three to four year, five year type of time horizon. So Sid Grover from Canterbury presented TDW at the summit. And that kind of raised a question for me. I mean, given everything we're seeing in the market, did a lot of people come out with energy opportunities? Was that a bit of a theme or was he kind of alone in that space? No, he wasn't alone. I think we had maybe two or three investors. I believe Michael Melby, who's going to be coming out shortly. He runs Gate City Capital. That'll be another one to pay attention to. So, you know, Michael Melby, he runs Gate City Capital. It's a hedge fund. He's mainly deep value, which everyone in deep value up until the last six months have gotten decimated, as you know. But I think he's up 700% in the last nine years compared to 200% for the S&P in a deep value strategy. Maybe that's some, somebody you should pay attention to. So he, he pitched an idea. I believe his was energy. And then Josh Young as well presented. And his was obviously energy too, because he's energy centered. So I think there was three energy ideas. So beyond these summits that you've been putting on, how do you currently you know, spend your time building your knowledge? Are there books that you've been reading or currently reading and do you stick to fiction, nonfiction? Like, how else do you influence yourself as the artist we were speaking about earlier? Yeah, I, I, I mix it up. So right now I'm reading Crime and Punishment. I'm going through a novel phase. So I've just been kind of going through some novels. I mean, from a pure investment book standpoint, you know, after you read 100 books on investing, the value gained from the incremental investment book kind of goes down and down. And so most of kind of what you learn from that point forward is through the experiences that you get as well. And so a lot of my a lot of my reading is well on the pleasure side it'd be more novel related and then on the investing side it would be reading obviously on individual companies and industries you know so it's mainly focused on those two areas and I used to you know spend probably an hour or two every two or three days just doing art you know charcoals and stuff like that I do find it's beneficial to kind of stretch the other side of the brain because what we do is very quantitative you know it's good to kind of and that's why I think I've kind of into this novel phase kind of lets the imagination go a little bit and a lot of times that's where you know, your creativity is fostered too. It kind of gives your brain some gaps to form ideas. And so I, I, it's important for me. It's part of the process. But right now, yeah, reading Crime and Punishment, probably read another novel after this one. The investing books that I read, obviously, I like William Green, who's hosts on the Investors Podcast. You know, I read his book. It's amazing. But primarily, it's industry or company-centric reading on the investing side. Probably the best book that I've read for investing in microcaps is a book called Sleuth Investor by Abner Mendelman. And it's all about sleuthing and how to try to find information on companies. You know, it kind of gets back to the point I made before about the key to this is just finding the truth. And that's a great book on how to sleuth and try to find non-public public information on companies. <laughs> that's the best way to put it. You know, unique public information. So, you know, that's probably the best book that is the most applicable to microcap investing. I, I think having the skills of a financial journalist or any type of journalist type will do really well at microcap. You know, just, just digging, digging, digging. 
Very cool. And with crime and punishment, I'm curious, is that sort of one of those things where, you know, you spent years or decades even reading all these nonfiction class and now you're finally getting able to go back to uh, the classics that you never got around to? Because I've experienced that for myself as well. It is. Yeah, that's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. Like somebody, I got a stack of books I've been meaning to read for feels like 20 years that I'm finally getting to. (laughs) So you're, you're exactly right. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, you know, fiction is almost more important than the nonfiction in some ways. There's a lot of research that goes in and definitely you can learn almost as much or more. Sometimes I'm not as good though about reading fiction. I got to be honest. Well, Ian, it is always such a pleasure to have you on the show. I always look forward to these discussions. Before I let you go though, I'd like to give you an opportunity to hand off to the audience where they can learn more about you and Microcap Club, the summit, any other resources or books you want to share. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Sure. No, and thanks for the opportunity to come on the program again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, people can find out more about me at microcapclub.com. You can also find me on Twitter. That's at Ian Castle is my handle. I do run some outside capital and that website is www.if.capital. Now, can anyone join the Microcap Club? What, what is it? What are sort of the qualifications and or you know, requisites? Sure. Yeah. So... Anybody can join. You can join in two different ways. You can either become a member or a subscriber. So to become a member, which means you can participate on the forum, you write a two to three page investment thesis on your favorite microcap stock. And we usually get 20 to 30 of those applications every month. At the end of the month, all our members vote on each one of those applications. And if you get enough votes, you get in as a member. And if you don't, you don't. And you know, usually, usually about 10% of people get in. That's kind of that's usually the hurdle rate. And so that's one way to join, and that's free. Kind of get in, get in on merit. And you can also join by subscribing, which is $500 a year. And that's view-only access of the forums and the conversations that we're having internally on microcapclub.com. And so internally, it just looks like a message board where somebody profiles company XYZ, they write up a thesis, and that starts the thread, and that starts the conversation. And since 2011, you know, we've had over 800 companies profiled on there by our members for the last 10 plus years. So it's a, it's a great way to find ideas. It isn't a guru service. It isn't a here, take Ian's 10 top picks and go make money. This is strictly, I want to find out what a bunch of smart people in this space of microcap investing like and why. And then it's up to you to kind of make up your own you know, decision on what you want to do with that information. Well, I really encourage everyone to check it out. And especially these summits, these are unbelievable resources you're putting on. I appreciate you actually distributing and disseminating the presentations. And for free, you can check these out on YouTube and they're 20 minutes long. They're packed with amazing information from incredibly smart people. So I highly encourage you to check it out, everybody. All right. So with that, Ian, I really appreciate the time and I hope to do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody, that's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.